Today on episode number 170 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I have the honor of speaking with Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Back on episode number 130 with Chris Gilliard, during the recommendations segment, his recommendation was the book Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. That author of that book is today's guest, Kathy O'Neill. And as a side note, Chris also recommended Kathy's Math Babe blog, and that will come up in our conversation today as well. Kathy O'Neill earned a PhD in math from Harvard, was a postdoc at the MIT math department, and a professor at Barnard College, where she published a number of research papers in arithmetic, algebraic, geometry. She then switched over to the private sector, working as a quant for the hedge fund D.E. Shaw in the middle of the credit crisis, and then for Risk Metrics, a risk software company that assesses risk for the holdings of hedge funds and banks. She left finance in 2011 and started working as a data scientist in the New York startup scene, building models that predicted people's purchases and clicks. She wrote Doing Data Science in 2013 and launched the lead program in data journalism at Columbia in 2014. She's a regular contributor to Bloomberg View and wrote the book Weapons of Math Destructions, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. She recently founded ORCAA, an algorithmic auditing company. Kathy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you here. Chris Gilliard suggested your book on an episode, I think it was about six months ago, and you were so gracious in accepting the invitation. And just thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. My pleasure. I will admit that when Chris suggested your book, it was one of those that I instantly thought I wouldn't have the background and expertise to enjoy. But yet I've been challenged by so many recent guests saying we need to regularly put ourselves in the role of learner. So I thought I could do this. And I will also say that the title captivated me too. And <laughs> I really did. So I thought I can do this. And from, I mean, I downloaded a sample first and I thought it's completely accessible. And I know that I am one of your audiences that you wrote it for. Can you talk a little bit about some of the problems with people like me who just sort of assume that math is not something that's accessible to us? Yeah, I mean, that you are actually the person I wrote this book for. Mm. I mean, I could have written a much more technical book to tell the, you know, the engineers at Facebook, hey, like you have to pay attention to what you what, you know, the side effects of your of your algorithms are. But I realized that, you know, Facebook is only one al algorithm. Actually, it has quite a few, but it, it's only one place. You know, there's actually algorithms that are affecting us in all sorts of ways. And moreover, it's and we'll talk about this, but like 
it's much more an issue of power than it is of technical knowledge at the, at the very base of it. It's, it's sort of like people who are in power using secret formulas to wield that power. And like, so the more examples I, I accumulated of sort of bad things happening in the world of big data and algorithms. And nowadays we say AI, the more I realized this has very little to do with technical knowledge and has everything to do with power and everyone understands power. So I'm going to write this book for everyone. And what is the goal for that power? What are what are the powerful looking to do with having control? The people who are in power always want to have control. <laughs> I think that is the po- the point, right? But many of the algorithms are brought on um, in order to increase efficiency. I think that's probably the way they're seen from the point of view of the people in power. Like we're going to increase efficiency, we're going to maximize, we're going to optimize to some kind of definition of success that they they choose. Sometimes it's profit, like they want to maximize profit. Um, sometimes it's like how many how many of these cases can we go through? Like we'd like to just be extremely efficient. Sometimes when you're talking about um, hiring algorithms, they're just like they don't want to actually have to have meetings between their human resources people and candidates. So they'll just like put a little algorithm in there, a, a personality test or some kind of resume filter That'll mean that few of their HR people will actually have to meet face-to-face with uh, with job applicants. And, of course, that is a form of efficiency as well. Now, the sort of most important point, though, about power is that, you know, the the people in power care about what they care about, but they don't care about what they don't care about. So they might care about only seeing one out of every 10 job applicants because they have too many job applicants, but that's not what the job applicants care about. The job applicants care about that they're being treated fairly. And um, sort of one of the most important messages of my book is that efficiency and fairness are really very different things. You don't you don't accidentally get something that's fair just because it was optimized to efficiency. And you talk about the victims of the weapons of math destruction. Can you share a little bit about them and also about the standards that they're held to versus the standards of the algorithms? Sure. I mean, some. I think my richest example probably comes from the world of um, like, um, teaching and public education, like primary school, secondary school. And we've seen lots of, you know, educational reform stuff going on. And it's not so much right now under the Trump administration, but certainly uh, under, um, under Bush and then um, especially Obama, we saw lots and lots of incentives at the federal level to be to hold our teachers accountable. And what that actually meant was almost always the same thing. And it was something called the growth score or the, sometimes called the value added model score for teachers. And I could go on literally for hours talking about the technical details of these scores. But the, the short version is that nobody understood them. They were built by small data companies secretly. The licensing agreements, the contracts that they made with the, with the Department of Education of New York City, for example, um, stipulated that nobody in New York City would ever under, ever see the formula. So literally no one in the actual education system understood the formula. And yet they were being dispersed to teachers. They were being, you know, they were being given to teachers. And if the teachers did badly on them, they could lose their tenure or they could not get tenure in the first place, I should say. So they were being used for young teachers to, as part of their tenure process. And in Washington, D.C., these secret scores, similar kind of scoring system, were actually being used to, to fire teachers and, and to give them bonuses, depending on whether they're bad or good. But in any case, they were secret. They were statistically flawed. And that's an important part of the story is that they weren't even 
they weren't good. They were, they didn't actually, they weren't meaningful and they were unappealable. And when people tried to appeal their score, which happened to a specific woman named Sarah Wasaki, who I um, profiled in my book, she tried to appeal her score and she was told, oh, sorry, this is a mathematical formula and it's fair. So people, and you know, Sarah pushed back against it because she had reason to believe it wasn't at all fair and, it, and she was right. But a lot of people make that mistake that they think that because something is mathematical, because it's an algorithm, it is inherently more fair than some kind of human process. Um, and that's sort of the other big lesson in my book is that there's absolutely no reason to think that algorithms are inherently fair. You talk about so many different topics in the book. And just for listeners that may not have read, although everyone needs to go pick up a copy after Harry hearing this interview today, online advertising, the justice system, getting a job, personal finances, getting insurance, politics, and college costs, recruitment, etc. And one of the people that you quote in the higher ed piece is President Lyndon Johnson. You talk a little bit about his ideal. And could you contrast his ideal learning, happiness, friendships, other aspects of a student's four-year experience with what things look like today as far as how we measure success? Right. I mean, in, you know, intelligent, thoughtful people can have different opinions about what college is for. Mm, yeah. And I, I don't feel like any one person, you know, can close the book on that. But I do think that it's definitely more than what is it's made out to be by these silly algorithms that are measuring that are measuring colleges. And of course, the biggest, most famous, long-lasting one has been the U.S. News and World Report algorithm that ranked colleges in large part based on their reputation, also based on like how many people actually came who were accepted, how many people applied and then were accepted, how many people were accepted who applied, I should say, um, and all these different metrics, which, as we all know, has deformed and perverted the college admissions system in the last 20 years simply because we, we and I, I blame myself, okay? Mm. <laughs> I blame all parents. I'm a parent. My son is about to uh, be a senior in high school. We care about this stuff too much. We, we ourselves are confused about what college is for. So given that we don't know exactly the answer to that, we rely very heavily on these ready-made lists for us that ranked lists of colleges. And we think, oh, if it's high in the, in the list, if it's ranked highly, then we'll, we'll be okay. And that, of course, that concern that the parents have and the reliance on these made-up scores, and I'll say more about why I think they're made up and arbitrary, has sort of translated into college administrations saying, oh, well, we you know, in order to get the best students, we need to, to look good on these college ranking systems. And then they've, they've gone ahead and done crazy things in order to, in order to improve their ranking. And I'll say like probably the biggest, the biggest problem with the U S news and world report ranking um, is what it doesn't count as a part of a, an informed parent's decision to where to send their kid or a part of an informed kid's decision as to where to go to college, namely the price so the U.S. News and World Report model doesn't care about price. And that means two things. First, it means that like, well, first, the reason they did that in my, my estimation is that they wanted to make sure that Harvard and Princeton and so on came up first on the original list. And if they had included price, that they would have looked bad. And the second reason, the second, the second comment about that, that omission is that it is meant that as administrators of all these colleges have 
changed and, and perverted their admissions process or their entire college, I should say, in order to improve their ranking. As that's happened, their tuition has gone sky high and it hasn't mattered. It like literally has been invisible to to the, the ranking system. So it's a, it's a real problem. And I should also add that there have been recently, like New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, I think both came up with different versions of how to rank colleges. I don't know if you've seen these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, you know, I, I'm really, on the one hand, I'm really glad to see that there are alternatives to the U.S. News and World Report, which is just so flawed. But I'll say like at the Wall Street Journal one, at, the, at least, cares very deeply about how much money students make after graduating. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm sure like a lot of parents care about that too. <laughs> but the truth is, we are, I hope, I still hope that we are not a culture that only cares about people striking at rich. And if, if we were doing that, you know, on the one hand, I think that's just a very crude way of thinking about education, as LBJ would agree with me. And it should be much more about like, becoming better people and becoming more informed. I understand that's a little bit idealistic, but another way of looking at why that's just a poor idea is that it means that engineering schools, you know, MIT or Harvey Mudd or other engineering schools would obviously benefit from that kind of consideration, but not everyone is going to go become an engineer. It doesn't make sense for all colleges to be measured by the same yardstick at the end of the day. So, I mean, Taking a step backwards in my critique of these ranking these ranking systems is I really wish that we could have a tool and I, I, it's not a it's not a list a list is too simplistic a tool that would help us decide what our our priorities were um, are for our children and to help our children decide what their priorities are and then they could develop their own list if you if you see what i mean rather than relying on somebody else's def- definition of what we should care about because they just they just never get it right i have such a powerful memory of about 5 years ago a guest speaker coming into my class and one of the students asking him how to be successful and he said well what what do you consider success and this was a really confident young man who always was quick to answer and, and very clear and articulate. And he was dumbfounded and it's kind of stumbled over his words uncharacteristically and finally said, I, I, I don't think I know. <laughs> so what you're saying really resonates with me where yeah. if we're not having those conversations about what success looks like and if we're creating algorithms around measuring things like income, we're setting ourselves up for some, as you say, you talk about some harmful, unintended consequences. And, and one of the things you share about the U.S. news model is its scale and how it's forcing everyone to shoot for, you say, exactly the same goals in sort of this rat race. And can you share a little bit more about some of the specifics around this rat race, what, what, what colleges and universities are doing in uh, participating in this? Sure. I mean, I'll say that I'll answer that question, but I do want to comment on what you said, which oh, is, you know, the dumbfounded student mm-hmm. comment, which is that like, it's just an observation I've made actually since the publication of my book almost a year ago, the paperback is coming out with an afterward. I'll, I'll add that it's going to be cheaper and longer oh, um, in a couple of weeks, which is that as an observation, a lot of the weapons of mass destruction, the most destructive, the most scaled, the, the most unfair, most secret algorithms that are being used and deployed in our in our culture are taking the place of difficult conversations. 
it's almost as if if you have a difficult conversation that you want to avoid, you replace that entire conversation with an algorithm and then you close your eyes and 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 all hell breaks loose. And I feel like that's exactly what's happened, right? It's a difficult conversation. What is success? It's a difficult conversation. What makes a good teacher? It's a difficult conversation. What makes a good job applicant? Or what is a good college? And all of these difficult conversations are like, my point is that we actually have to have them. We can't just bypass them with some kind of simplistic, crude scoring system that doesn't make sense. Now, in terms of answering your question, there's been just an enormous long history of, of schools just simply cheating on their score. And the way they cheat is that they do things like they, they lie about the average SAT score of their incoming freshman class. Or I guess they, they're supposed to say about the, the people who've applied. to the, I, There's all sorts of like things that they are self-reporting to U.S. News, which is already kind of a crazy system where they can just like say the wrong numbers. So that's happened all over the place. I know Emory College did that. There's just been like a, a, se- a sequence of schools that have been, have been found out doing that for decades. Of course, there's probably it's probably the tip of the iceberg. So there's probably not nine times as many schools who have been doing that. We haven't actually found caught cheating. And then there's just a series of schools that will game their, their numbers. So gaming their numbers, that means like taking advantage. They're not technically cheating, but they're, they're doing weird things to get their numbers um, spiked. So they'll do things like invite a bunch of students to apply that will never ever be able to get in just to increase their, their metric on like the number actually it'll be decreasing their metric on like the number of um, applicants accepted versus applied, you know? So it'll look like they're a very competitive school because so many people are applying, but of course that doesn't help anyone, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't help anyone to like apply to a school that they have no chance in getting in. It's just a disappointment. It's a waste of time and it's a waste of money. And that's just sort of the beginning. I mean, that there are also schools that are basically competing for elite students. Now, I, I wouldn't say like Harvard ever competes for elite, elite students. So it'd be like not the very first tier of schools, but the second tier of schools. So they'll be developing, they'll be doing crazy things like having um, beautiful sports complexes for their athletes and for and for their average students as well um, with, uh, with things like, you know, like almost water park type features and like common rooms that are just exorbitantly luxurious and not to mention like fancy, fancy dorms and stuff like that. All stuff that, you know, if you ask, I think if you ask anyone above the age of 40, do you think it's a good idea to put a bunch of 18 year olds into luxury accommodations? I think the answer would be a resounding no. Like these kids are college students. They're supposed to be poor and work hard. That's the, that's kind of the point of college, like to live almost like a monk, but that's not at all what we're seeing with these schools that are desperate for, um, desperate for like full tuition students. Would you then talk about what the Obama administration tried to do to create a rejiggered ranking system to address some of these and that it doesn't necessarily have a happily ever after story? Well, I don't actually know what the status of the tool is. I know that the Trump administration has been taking down all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, I mean, I think the way the genesis of this is that the Obama administration like they they had a very successful sort of war against for-profit colleges um thank goodness because that's actually another chapter in my book about the way that for-profit colleges targeted online students that were both poor enough to be eligible for financial aid and ignorant enough to think that for-profit colleges were actually good educations 
So, but, so one of the things they did, the Obama administration is like, they realized that these colleges had just like really deplorable, like graduation rates. They loaded their students with a lot of debt afterwards and their students did not get good jobs. So they, they were trying to figure out a way to sort of highlight those schools in a sort of simple way. Um, and so they had these ideas of building a new ranking system based on things like graduation rate, debt load, and jobs, you know, whether they got paid paid jobs afterwards. And I think they eventually realized that that it's never easy easy to simplify this stuff. Like like I was saying, it's like never there is no one way of thinking about this. You really do have to think about it. and I'm not saying that for-profit colleges are good for people. That's not my that's not my point. But I'm saying that any given metric, any given scoring system which which makes for-profit colleges look bad will also probably make some pretty good colleges look bad. Pretty good colleges which are like taking a chance on on really really poor kids um, that don't necessarily graduate at a high rate, etc. So at the end of the day, the Obama administration actually built a tool not that unlike the one I was saying I wish we had. It was it's not as developed as I hoped it would be, but it's a tool that a, a parent or a, with their child could go to and try to make decisions like, do we want to live in the city? And it does ca- count tuition considerations, and it in all, all sorts of like majors you could choose. You know, I think no tool is going to be perfect, especially in the in the context of the fact that college pricing is almost entirely opaque. Like what they can write down is the sticker price of a college Mm -hmm. education, but like almost nobody pays the sticker price. So we have, we have a pretty opaque market actually. It's hard to build a tool that clarifies that market when you don't actually know what the prices are. I mean, I think that's probably another reason that the U S news model never counted cost because it's really hard to actually know what the cost is. Colleges keep that under wraps. We have a couple of questions that came in from Kevin Werbach, who I know has interviewed you for his radio show, he said about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And he had a couple of questions. One we already talked about, which is just that you wrote your book for people like me and that there's a problem with the general population thinking that we can't understand the issues. And I would say for anyone who's feeling that way uh, today, that that you're likely wrong. I think all of us are able to, you you make it very accessible to understand. And then I've just been thinking about it nonstop. Anyway, he did want you to share a little bit about though, the other challenging audience, which would be the technical community that doesn't see a problem that it's just math. So there aren't problems here. There aren't ethical choices being embedded here. You know, I actually haven't found any pushback about the fact that I claim there are ethical there are ethical choices in every single algorithm we build. I don't. I haven't gotten real pushback from that. I just wrote an essay for a libertarian outfit called Cato Unbound, and there are like my essay that addresses this, and then there's like some some response essays by one by a libertarian, and who's just like, yeah, that's this is true. This is true. Now he goes on to say that he worries much more about government using algorithms than he worries about private companies using algorithms. I don't. I worry about them both. So he has to be a libertarian because he is. But I, I actually, you know, and I would have expected pushback there, but I haven't gotten it. And I, what I have gotten is more fundamental, actually, which is, well, there are ethical, there are values that we embed in our, in our algorithms, but my values are different from yours. Um, and that's a different issue, right? So, you know, so Facebook's algorithm, going back to that, it, it optimizes 
it optimizes its newsfeed, the stuff we actually see on our on our wall, for engagement. Engagement is a proxy for how much time we spend on Facebook, which is again an, a, a proxy for how much money they make. So the longer we spend, the longer the more we click on their ads and the more money they make. So you could just argue that this is their overall goal is to trick you to stay on Facebook for as long as possible. I mean, that's might as well be a stated goal of Facebook. So they're optimizing for profit. Now, my point is, well, that's a, that's a value. Even though it sounds just purely capitalistic, it's 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 not the same thing, for example, as another value they could have chosen, which would be uh, we want to optimize for civic con- civil conversation. We want to optimize for true information. We want to optimize for happiness. There, I mean, there's lots of choices they could have made. They chose the one that profited them the most, which makes sense. And and that's what the engineer at Facebook, who I argued about this is about, like it does make sense for them, but I'm not sure it's good for us. It's you know, and and a larger a larger point, like moving away from Facebook, is a lot of the things that are happening in the world of algorithms make sense, especially for the people deploying them, and even may, maybe makes sense for us as consumers. As consumers, we want there to be tough competition on Amazon and, you know, to get the lowest price. And we want to, to, we might even want them to tailor their offerings to what we actually like based on our, our profile and our, and our consume, our consumption history. But the question I want to ask is, you know, given that it might make sense to us as consumers, does it make sense to us as citizens, as, you know, sort of civically engaged, well-informed voters? Because from my perspective, I don't think it does. I think it makes sense to us as consumers. Maybe it makes sense to us as people who spend a lot of time on Facebook, although that doesn't seem to be particularly good for our mental health. But it definitely does not seem to make sense to us as people who want to know facts and who want to live in the same sort of factual universe as our neighbors, even if we disagree with them on politics. Because that's what I'm seeing happening as a result of these optimized algorithms is that since they're optimized on, on, on profit rather than facts, we are just cleaving as, as a society into our separate little places where our facts are all different. And that's really, really threatening to democracy. One of the other challenges you talk about, too, is just the lack of transparency about the algorithms and thereby these proxies. Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're talking about getting a job, uh, being assessed at your job, getting insurance, getting credit credit like credit cards or loans, maybe mortgages. These are decisions that we care about. Like if we're if we're told no, you're not going to get this, you're not going to get a job or you're going to get fired because the algorithm tells us you're a bad worker. We should know what that algorithm is saying. And there's plenty of laws, by the way, that are regulating these things that are not necessarily being applied in the cases of algorithms because on the one hand, regulators think that algorithms are fair because they're just humans and all humans think that algorithms are fair. So they're just kind of ignorant. And second of all, even if they know that algorithms can be unfair, they don't know how to test algorithms because of what you said, their opacity and their trade secrets. Um, So we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. I don't think algorithms are going away. I think we have to, we have to develop tools to interrogate them. And so actually that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do next with my life. Well, I have one more question before we get to the recommendation segment, but I did want to mention to people listening that I'm going to link to two of your articles. I mean, I'll link to more than two, but I I specifically found two recently that I think are really worth checking out. In The Guardian, you write about how can we 
stop algorithms telling lies. And I just think it's a wonderful introduction to your thoughts around that. And then you mentioned health insurance. And oh my gosh, I can't resist mentioning the one in Bloomberg that you wrote. Big data is coming to health insurance. There's a lot of important things for us to be having those hard conversations about that you said that we're, we're often avoiding. So the last question before we get to recommendations, could you share, and this is from Kevin Werbach again, could you share a little bit your thoughts about, do you see yourself as a teacher? He sees you as a teacher and I sure do too, not just as a scientist and author. You know, I am a teacher. I, I'm not a sort of technically getting paid to teach right now, sadly. I, I, you know, someday maybe we'll find a space for myself in academia again and I, and I have a formal teaching job because I really love, I love students. I love teaching. I love the whole process, but yeah, I, I sort of feel like writing the book was an act of trying to um, educate not just a specific class of kids or, or even adults, but like an entire culture about the, the things that I, these problems I thought were urgent and un you could say underreported, but I would say like not at all reported. When I started writing the book six years ago, I think I was the only person I knew who was worried about this stuff. It's a very male-dominated, white male-dominated culture. And I think that's relevant because I think the kinds of exclusions that were I was seeing as a possibility, and not just as a possibility, but doing some thought experiments I saw as like an absolute fact, um, were typically just not affecting the people who were building these tools. So like we were building tools that were having these effects, but we weren't thinking very hard about what those effects would look like. And I thought of it as a, you know, again, an urgent matter. And I wanted to, this information to get out to the public. And I was like, how, how am I going to possibly do this? And I had a blog, but there's only so much, there's only so many readers for a specific blog. So yeah, I, I wrote a book instead. And it's, it, yeah. And, and of course it's not, you just write a book and that's great. And some people read the book, but then also, people want to talk to you about it. So just this act of talking to you right now, right? I sort of think of it as my job for now. My job is to communicate these ideas. And it's a real job. It takes hours every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the great news is that the book has been translated into just a bunch of languages. And I'm getting some like German, my German edition and my Italian edition are coming out in a few days. My, my Hong Kong edition already came out. It's like very, very exciting that not only are a bunch of people in the States and Canada um, and UK listening to these ideas, but now like kind of worldwide. Pretty amazing. That's wonderful. And just congratulations. And I, I so appreciate that you are teachers to so many of us. And it's exciting to see the success. I hope we can spread a little bit of word about it out, out to the, all those nurses from all over the world. And how fun to see all those translations coming out too. It is really fun. This is the part of the show where we each get to recommend something. And it has been a while since we've had one of these interviews where we're not at least speaking a little bit about current events. It's always hard because we're pre-recording a little bit, but we need Mm -hmm. to be having a lot of conversations about race. And we've had some recent episodes on that topic specifically. And of course, your book also speaks a lot about race as well. And I found a wonderful book of a wonderful list of 40 inspiring books on girls and women of the civil rights movement. It's from a website called A Mighty Girl. And I really like a lot of their resources on books, toys, movies for smart, confident and courageous girls. And I just loved it It had everything from little my we have a little three year old girl and a five year old boy. And I love for them to hear stories about really strong people 
both men and women. And I love for them to hear a little bit about the civil rights movement. We've been talking a lot about that in our house and, you know, trying to do the best we can in an age appropriate way. About the age of four is where child development specialists say that that's when kids start to notice race. And I'll still never forget we're riding the trolley around. There's an outdoor mall here called Fashion Island. We're with our our friends. It's a a biracial couple and their young boy sitting right next to our son and my son starts pulling up his pant legs and trying to and the because the young boy was wearing shorts and saying mommy look his look at that look at his skin is different than my skin and I'm you know both embarrassed but just knowing that this is normal and that we need to have these conversations so I found these 40 inspiring books on girls and women of the civil rights movement might be a way to inspire some of these conversations in our homes that we absolutely need to be having very nice Thanks. And Kathy, I'm going to pass it over to you now to recommend whatever you would like. Okay. Well, I, is it okay if I recommend a couple books? Absolutely. Okay. Well, so first I'll recommend a book that's not new. It's a, it's a book that inspired me to write my book, actually. It's called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And um, following up on your theme of race, it's it's a, it's a s- amazing book that sort of explains the the criminal justice system and all the different points of contact that people have with the criminal justice system when they do, and how every single one of them is biased, racially biased. And it's, it sort of put, it put me in this sort of like life, lifetime goal of understanding it in a kind of data-centric way. I think the, the book I would have loved to write, and I would still love to write, is a book about sort of measuring and quantifying everything that Michelle Alexander says about the racist criminal justice system. And it's beautifully written. I think everyone should love that book as much as I do. So that's that's a book that's kind of maybe five or ten years old. Two books I've read recently that I've really liked. One is called um, The Ideas Industry, and it's written by Daniel Dresner. And he talks about the way ideas become politically important. And the and who are the messengers of these ideas and his large point is that we have too many thought leaders right now and not enough public intellectuals <laughs> and you might not know what those mean but a very short version is a thought leader is someone who's like i have this idea and it's going to solve all our problems and as soon as you hear that you're like yeah we have too many of those people like they're often in silicon valley right and then we have not enough public intellectuals whose job is to kind of just tear down the worst ideas out there and so we have too many ideas that are being produced and promised us, promised to us as sort of the big fixes and not enough people saying that's a terrible idea. And I love this book partly because I'm, I'm a public intellectual, right? I'm mm-hmm. saying like big data is not going to solve all our problems. And I like the fact that he says we need more of people like me. Um, and then finally, the book that I liked the most this year I read was called Hunger by Roxane, Roxane Gay. I don't know if you have discussed this on your podcast, but like she's amazing. And it's about her story of being a six foot, you know, very large plus size woman and just fierce and very honest. And like as a, as a 300 pound woman myself, <laughs> really, really resonated with me. And it's just a, an enormously important, just an incredible book that I think everyone should take a look at. Just the week 
prior to them hearing this episode with you, they'll hear Kathy Davidson recommending the same book. But oh, really? it's always fun to hear someone else's what they took away from a read. You know, so it's, I, I love sometimes when there's repeats even more because we get to hear more nuance and what a, what a way in which a book connected specifically with someone. And, it, and you're just convincing me even more that I've got to move that up my queue to, to take a read of it just sounds like I'll such tell a you what you're, you're not going to put it down like I picked it up and I didn't put it down until it was done that's that's how good she is she's such a good writer it was particularly resonant for me because I've actually just had a gastric bypass a gastric a sleeve surgery in order to address my health my long-term health and so it was just fascinating to read her struggles because there's just so close to mine but we have very very different very different ways of approaching how to deal with with ourselves. So, you know, I, I might even end up writing a book about not it wouldn't be anything like hunger because it's that's its, its own book, but another book about about weight and women. So who knows? It's a it's a very it's an important book, though. Well, thank you so much. And I, I wasn't sure if I should bring up, I, as I mentioned, I, there were so many things I wanted to bring up about your book. And then I love reading your blog. I'll definitely be linking to that in the show notes as well. And to some of your posts about your surgery so people can see a little bit about that journey and some of the things that you're learning there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for investing your time. It's just been so exciting to get to read your book and learn from you and then just to have this opportunity to share your work with others. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. What an honor it has been to get to talk to Kathy today. Thank you so much for investing your time in the teaching and higher ed community. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you would like to help others discover the show, one of the best ways to do that is to give it a rating or write a review on whatever service it is you use to listen to the show. That's one of the best ways, speaking of algorithms, to get us to move up in the rankings and help other people see that this show is available. But it's also great if you just pass it on word of mouth, share with others about the show and what you're taking away from it. And if you would like more regular updates to not have to remember to go to those show notes and you want to subscribe to the weekly email, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe and you'll get a weekly email with the show notes and also with a article I write about blogging and teaching. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <music>